As you're taking your seats, if you would turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. We'll not be preaching from Colossians today, finishing Colossians up, um, as I've been going sporadically throughout the year. But we're taking a break, and we're going to Revelation. If you have, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can usually find one of the black Bibles in the pews. Uh, it's page 1030. You can always pull it up on your phone as well. Hear now God's holy and inerrant word given for you and me today. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, said out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell, fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this revelation, this revealing of what is to come, this hope for our lives as we live waiting that day when our Savior will return, when Jesus will come, and we will be forevermore in your presence, worshiping you. 
Oh, dear Lord, we ask that as we consider this chapter today, this brief look into what is to come, that you would give us your spirit to understand, for we cannot understand unless you give us the wisdom to understand. And by your spirit, we pray that you would renew us, that you would change us. For those who do not know you, that you would bring them into your kingdom. And that all would be done to the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, happy New Year's Eve. We don't typically follow a liturgical calendar as far as the preaching here at Forest Gate. But every year it just seems fitting around this time to do some kind of sermon that touches on the past, the past year, and looks at the future. I don't think there's any better book of the Bible to look at during this time of the year than Revelation. There is so much in this book that touches on the past. It brings in all of the references from the Old Testament and the New Testament, brings them all into this vision. And, that, and yet there's so much of the future as well. There's so many things here that we, we do not fully understand yet because they haven't yet been revealed. And so as we sit on the precipice of a new year, it's a good thing to reflect, to consider what God has done, both in our lives and in the lives of his people for, throughout all history. And then to look at the future, to look at what God is doing, what he will do. So as we look here at Revelation 5 today, we're going to be looking at the, the culmination of history, the climax of God's promises fulfilled. We'll do that by unpacking it in three, uh, three different points today. First, we'll see who is worthy. Second, we'll see the worthy gives worth. And third, we'll see the work proceeding from hope. Let's look then, jumping back into the middle of the Apostle John's vision with this first point, who is worthy? Well, just some context. John is in the middle of this vision. He's in chapter 4. He looked and he saw heaven, the, the doors of heaven open. And John sees here this vision of, of the heavenly scene, the throne room with the Lord seated on the throne and the host of heaven surrounding the throne, giving worship and praise. John sees here the, the Lord of creation, the creator of the universe sitting on his throne and in his hand he holds a scroll written on both sides, written with the full knowledge of what is to come. And on the scroll, there are seven seals, protecting it, giving constraints, giving a time when, these, when the scroll might be revealed. Then a mighty angel speaks with a booming voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. God used a scroll like this many times in the life of Israel. God used scrolls with his people, with his prophets. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah all have very similar language to John here. 
God gave his prophets many times a scroll containing either a blessing or a curse, whatever was befitting for the people and the reason for the revelation. And as the prophet is given a scroll to reveal, he's also given the authority to open the scroll to reveal God's will to the people. The word of God is then carried out through the revealing of that word. And here's where our first problem arises. John continues, No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And they began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one could open the scroll. No one was worthy. Even those prophets whom God had used in the past to deliver his messages to his people, they were not worthy either. This scroll is only for the one who has the highest authority. One who, as we'll see later, has claimed that authority by ransoming God's own people with his own blood. After the fall, God began to reveal what kind of king we need. What kind of king would come and rule God's people? We certainly need someone who, unlike Adam, would fulfill the whole law of God perfectly, who would be sinless, who would obey every aspect of God's holy law. But we also begin to see that God's king would be a savior. The problem for us is that we are not worthy to open this scroll. We aren't even close. Not only do we fall far short of the perfection that is required, but we have no ability to save anyone else. God's plan rested on one who not only would be the perfect king, but would also lay down his life for his people. Many people live life trying to be good. I've worked with many people, I've had many friends who are not Christians who try to live a good life in the eyes of the world. They try to be kind, they try to be generous, virtuous, and yet we still make mistakes, we still fall short. I believe, I think it's still true that if you went out and asked any number of random people if the golden rule still applied, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, I think most people would still say yes, but that's not enough. God doesn't lower his standards to our feeble attempts at civility. He requires full perfection. And then goes on a, a step further and requires that the worthy one is one who will give his own life for his enemies. Romans chapter 5 verses 7 and 8 confirms this. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the one who is worthy. As John looked eagerly, was almost overcome with sorrows, there's hope. One of the elders came and gave John great comfort we see uh, Revelations 5, 5 and 7. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
Between the throne, the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw the Lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. There's one who is worthy. There's one who can come and take and open the scroll. Who is this one? There's so much imagery packed into this description of Jesus. Notice how he is described as the Lion of Judah, this great warrior, the one who would be king. And yet John sees, when he looks to see this lion, he sees the lamb, which appears to have been sacrificed. See all the imagery of the strength of Judah, the lion, also the sacrifices that the priests would offer for Israel. All of that comes flooding into our vision. Here's the one, the one who all of those pictures point to. All of those images, those, those brief and, and limited views in the Old Testament point to Jesus. This is the great Messiah. Then we see more. Furthermore, the, the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. The seven horns represent a ultimate rule, ultimate authority. We see horns used this way throughout the Old Testament, such as in Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is the horn of my salvation. Or Daniel 7, verse 24. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. So the, ten, the, the seven horns here represent that power, that authority, that rule, and the perfection of it. The ultimate rule. Similarly, the seven eyes represent, as it says, the Spirit of God, which also we see in Revelation and elsewhere represented by the seven lamps. In Zechariah 4, for example, we read, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold, and with, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it. A little later, these seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the whole earth. Or back in Exodus 25, as God gave instructions for the tabernacle, he said, you shall make seven lamps for it, and the, the lamps shall be set up as to give light on the space in front of it. So God's Spirit is this presence, this, uh, this all-present representation of the Spirit of God. And here it is with the Lamb, the Spirit and the Lamb together here before the throne. God is with his people. God is throughout all the earth and with us this morning. God is strong to save. This is the Messiah that stands to claim victory. He comes now and he claims his prize, opens the scroll. It's no wonder that no one else in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to take and to open the scroll. You and I don't have what it takes to win. You can't live your entire life trying to be a good person. You won't ever win that prize. But some of you know your Bibles well. You're wondering, what really is this prize? After all, God's revelation often comes with curses and punishment for those who have sinned against God, which is all of us, lest we forget. 
And indeed, if we read on in chapter 6, the first four seals that are opened bring forth chaos and destruction on the earth. What kind of prize is that? Well, the, cur- the, the, the scroll here is, is both the blessing and the curse. It is the beginning of the end, as we'll see. Within the scroll is destruction for the wicked, but also rest for the redeemed. And without the opening of the scroll, there is no end to wars or the wicked rivalry of man, because no one is worthy to claim the authority that comes with the scroll or the peace that flows from the throne. But divine judgment takes some wrestling with. God's tools of justice are not trivial. Miroslav Volf, Protestant theologian and Croatian, has lived through some of the most horrific atrocities and wars that humanity can endure. In the past 50 years, there's been much devastation for the Croatian people, and he's seen the suffering and evil of this world. And in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, Miroslav Volf argues that Jesus' redemption offers hope because it answers our deepest need for justice and peace. He says, one could object that it is not worthy of God to wield the sword. Is God not love, long-suffering, and all-powerful love? The counter-question could go something like this. Is it not a bit too arrogant to presume that our contemporary sensibilities about what is compatible with God's love are so much healthier than those of the people of God throughout the whole history of Judaism and Christianity. In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. Both continues on showing how divine justice is something that we desperately need. There's so much wrong in this world. You and I feel it every day, though probably in much more innocuous ways than many of our brothers and sisters around the globe are feeling it right now. But we need true peace. We need true justice. Indeed, God will punish the wicked, and that is why we need the Lamb who has ransomed a people by his own blood. That is why if we stand on our own merit and believe that we are good enough on our own, we should take great caution from this passage. John's joy regarding the lamb who can open the scroll is terror to those who do not know the Savior. But there is hope. We've seen who is worthy, Christ, the lamb. Let's now look at how this worthy one gives worth to you and me. We all know that phrase, uh, one common parlance, uh, coined by Lord Acton in the 1800s, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the weariness of men over millennia, the millennia of history, to oppress or to be oppressed And yet Christ shows us another way. Jesus shows an absolute power that does not corrupt, but rather gives life. You see, our sinful hearts want to consolidate power, to use power to protect ourselves, 
from perceived threats. Our tendency when we are put in control of people or situations is to rule with cruelty, lest we be seen as weak or inept ourselves. But that is not the type of power that Jesus shows. Think of Jesus' earthly ministry. How many times did Jesus serve his disciples instead of demanding service? How many times did Jesus give honor to the lowly and the outcast instead of demanding worship? When did Jesus cast out the weak and worthless? No, he welcomed the least and even rebuked his disciples when they tried to limit the children, tried to take the children away. Jesus doesn't consolidate power, but he gives freely and he exalts those around him. And now we see that he does not take all the glory for himself, even though he is the one who has conquered, even though he is rightfully due all glory and praise. But instead, he makes his people what they could never be on their own. See how the elders sing in verses 9 and 10, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Again, this is not the first time that God has promised that his people will be a kingdom of priests, nor that they would reign with the Christ. In Exodus 19, God promised, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And in 2 Timothy 2, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Don't let the significance of this reality pass you by. Take a minute with me to really meditate on what Jesus has done for us. Remember, there is no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth who is worthy to open the scroll until Jesus has conquered. We had no chance to stand before the throne of God and to live. And yet here we are now a kingdom of priests. Do you realize what that means? Jesus has given us access through his own blood to the throne room of God. In a world that is so desperate to find identity and worth, here it is. Who are you? In Christ, you are a priest of God, holy and sacred, beautiful and beloved. You are glorious. And that's not it either. Jesus has given you a glorious identity, and then he invites you to share in his authority, to rule with him. Again, remember that no one has the authority to take the scroll. We could have never have hoped to taste the kind of love that the Father has shown the Son, that well-done approval that the Father shows. Yet when Jesus takes the authority, he shares it with you and with me. We are no longer spectators from afar, but now we are participants in God's rule and authority. So do you live out of that identity in Christ? All of our thoughts, words, actions either align with who we are in Christ or they betray 
our distrust in this reality? Is this truth in Christ too good to be true? Dr. Dennis Johnson, who wrote uh, just a fantastic commentary on the book of Revelation, would highly recommend it. Dr. Johnson said, this, this death of awe in our culture has left us with an oddly credulous cynicism. We are cynical, suspicious of established government, education, technology, and medicine. Yet our cynicism is the recycled remnant of dashed hopes and broken faith. Precisely because, having lost sight of the God who is worthy, we have invested such trust in these institutions to save our civilization and us. I think he's spot on. You hear what he's saying here. He's saying, our world is so full of cynicism. We don't trust our leaders anymore. We don't trust the experts. We don't trust AI, which if you've read any good science fiction is the demise of the human race. Our misplaced hopes in man have poisoned our belief that God's promises are really real. Perhaps we struggle so much living in the reality of what Jesus has done because we substitute the promises of God with the promises of broken people. But do not be discouraged. God's faithfulness doesn't depend on the amount of faith that we have. One thing that should become crystal clear here is that we are completely dependent on Jesus. Even if we stumble through life, doubting and even hating our dependence on God at times, he will not forsake his beloved children. Jesus has shared his glory with you and has invited you into the throne room to share in his glory and rule. So we've seen the one who is worthy. We've seen how the Lamb of God, the worthy one, gives worth to his beloved people. So let's look at our response, which is the work proceeding from hope. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon how we live according to what we perceive. How could we do otherwise? We know that because of our finitude, because of our limitations, we do not always live in light of the realities of God. And further still, while God has revealed many things to us and has given us full assurance that Jesus has made us his own, we do not yet see all things in submission to him. We do not yet reign with him. So this is the realm of faith, a hope in things yet unseen and incomplete. While we truly believe in God's promises, we long dearly for the day when our hope will become history, when promise will become perfection. But as we wait, our hope is not impotent. Through hope, we live our lives according to the ultimate realities of God. Hope changes everything. It's the reason why we can continue to run the race that is set before us. Without a goal in view, we run aimlessly into the void. But now we see that we are, even now, a kingdom of priests to God. We are redeemed in Christ. And we look forward to that day when we will reign with Christ, when his kingdom is fulfilled. What does this mean for our lives here and now? 
What might this coming year look like as citizens of Jesus' kingdom of priests? One of the key parts of Revelation 5 that I really haven't touched on yet are these 24 elders that stand around the throne. And it is in their example that we see what our lives here and now might look like. As we see in their example, we are in the throne room of God. We are before God. Even though we do not see God face to face, we are in his presence. And we are able to do things new. We are given a new heart. So what do we see the elders doing in this chapter? First, they speak comforting truth. Second, they offer up prayer. And third, they worship God. They speak comforting truth. They offer up prayer and they worship God. We'll go through these things quickly as we conclude. First, we see in verse 5 that they speak the comforting truth. One of the elders comes up to John who has lived. Remember, John has lived this gospel with Christ. He was there. He reminds him of the truth. He says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. As God's people, we have the truth. We have the revelation of God. What has happened, what is, and what is to come. Jesus has given us a hope we are citizens of his kingdom. We get to share in the reason of the hope that is within us. And through that, we get to tell, tell others about this hope. We get to explain to those who are in darkness that there is hope, that there is life and light in Christ. We get to tell others, weep no more. Jesus has won. You don't have to strive in this life to make a name for yourself because Jesus has already done what you could never do. He is worthy because he gave his life for you. And you can be a part of his kingdom of priests as well. This is comforting truth. We get to share that with those around us. Second thing we see, we see the elders offering prayer. In verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl of full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. One of the responsibilities of the elders is to bring the prayers of the saints before God. That's why we emphasize prayer each week here at Forest Gate. It's part of whenever our elders here meet together. We are God's messengers, those who are to lift up one another in prayer. But prayer is also one of the gifts that God has given to each one of us. It's not just for the elders. We are, after all, a kingdom of priests, able to enter into the throne room of God and to lift up our petitions and praises. And I love the imagery here, Revelation 5, of the golden bowls of incense. God doesn't view our prayers as mundane. They are honored and beautiful in God's sight. They are a sweet aroma, pleasing to God. That is why we must, we get to, offer prayers 
for both ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. Third, and finally, we see that the elders forever worship God. All throughout this chapter, all throughout Revelation, we see creation worshiping God. We see the elders, all the angels gathering together to worship. In chapter 4, they proclaim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is coming. Then they cast their crowns, falling before God, worshiping, submitting themselves to his authority. Here in chapter 5, verse 8, they sing anthems of praise, recounting all that God has done. Then the angels join as well in verse 12, describing God's attributes of rule, power, wealth, wisdom, and might, and his attributes of excellence, honor, glory, and blessing. Gathering together with the angels, they sing his praises, and then worship again swells to all creation. Everything in creation joins together. Verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the noise, the booming, wonderful praise of God? All of creation joined together, worshiping our God. So we get to worship our God. We get to live our lives every moment of every day, worshiping God. This is the work proceeding from hope. To join with all those who have come before, with the myriads of angels, with all creation in worshiping our God. We are no closer to realizing our hope than when we are testifying to God's truth, lifting up treasured prayers and worshiping with one another, our great God. Christian, if you long for heaven and the peace that surpasses all understanding, there is no better way to spend your life than doing these things. As we live, we live with hope and the knowledge that Jesus is worthy. We are his kingdom of priests, and we live in the life that Jesus gives to us. To him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. O great, glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to you be all praise and glory. As we are here this morning waiting, longing for that day when our faith will be sight, we pray that you would give us the courage and the joy and the wisdom to see how these things are true. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see our Savior who is the Lamb, the Lion, who is our King. We pray that together we would be your people, your kingdom of priests, living as those elders are living, praising you, testifying to the truth, offering up prayers that are so beautiful in your sight. We pray that our lives may be lives of worship, giving to you all the glory and honor and blessing that you deserve. 
We pray this not for our sake, though we greatly long for it and greatly benefit from it. But we pray because we have a great Savior who has ransomed a people from every every tribe, every tongue, every nation and people. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.